If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. It is my joy and privilege to serve you in the Word as we set out to begin this study of first, and we will, Lord willing, make it to Second Thessalonians. We'll start today. We'll take a little bit of a break in uh, around Christmas time, but we will go from now all the way till next summer. Uh, yeah, a long time. First and Second Thessalonians. Um, so that's what we're going to do. So today starts it all off. And so we're going to begin by looking at a passage that you'll see behind me from the book of Ephesians, uh, which was written to another church that was planted by the Apostle Paul. And in this passage, we learn what God, in part, was doing before the foundation of the world. It says there in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, referencing God, even as he, God the Father, has chose us in him, that's Christ, even as he, God the Father, has chose us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. He chose the church before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And friends, what we learn from that passage alone is that the gospel was not plan B in God's plan of redemption. Before he said, let there be light, he had already said, let there be a people that I've set my love upon to be blameless through the sufficient work of my son. God had already foreordained a people that would be won by his son. And as you heard Joey read from Deuteronomy 7, that initially came in the old covenant from his people Israel to be among those of whom he chose for his glory. And in Israel, some had faith, some revealed themselves to be those of whom he chose, but most didn't. And in the wake of this gospel, or in the wake of this story, in the wake of this uh, Old Testament stories where Israel is not faithful to God, God had previously promised again that he would send his son, and that son in the New Testament what we read shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. He bursts onto the scene And this promised son is going to not make possible a people for whom God set his affection, but to actually purchase them. A people that he had chosen in love from before the foundation of the world. Jesus burst on the scene as the true and the better Adam. He was fully God and fully man. He was faithful. He taught the truth. He lived the truth. And importantly, he loved the truth because he loved his father and his people of whom he would die for to the end. And there in Christ, having lived the sinless life there on the cross, dies on that cross so as to assuage, so as to pacify, so as to appease the anger, the wrath of God for all of our sins. And therein Jesus is buried and three days later, just as he said, rises from the dead, showing that he indeed does pay for the sins of those that believe, showing indeed that the price has been paid and that he has defeated sin and death. Jesus then 40 days later ascends to the heavens Uh, He sits at the right hand of the Father, at which time he sends the Spirit of God to then take up residence among those disciples who then are commissioned, who have been commissioned to go be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that's what they do. The Apostle Peter, having believed in Christ, being born again by the power of the Spirit, previously shuddering to be identified with Christ, now is emboldened to preach the gospel. 
He goes up there in Jerusalem, preaches the gospel, and thousands repent and believe. Spirit falls upon many there. Uh, and those people, after having believed, are baptized. And therein, a church is formed in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Where they then devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and the fellowship. Till eventually persecution arises to the church there in Jerusalem. Just the same persecution that Jesus promised would come. And so they then begin to spread out to Judea and Samaria. Some make their way to a city by the name of Antioch where a church is formed there. The man previously known as Saul, which was a great persecutor of the church, has now become Paul because he has been born again by the grace through, by his grace through faith in Christ. He then is commissioned, Paul is commissioned to be a witness to the nations, to the Gentile peoples. And he takes an initial journey, Paul does, on that first journey. You can look at this if you want to slip. For those of you that have Bibles, look to the back. You can see his journeys on that maps. It's a great way to use those maps. Just look at those maps. His first journey, he goes off and shares the gospel. People are formed. Churches are formed. Churches are planted and started. He then comes back and reports to the church there in Antioch. Here's what happened. We preached the gospel. Churches were formed. He then sets out on a second missionary journey. And he takes this guy by the name of Silas, sometimes called Silvanus. Paul heads out on this second missionary journey. He intends to go to Asia, but the Spirit forbids him to do so. And instead he gets this uh, vision called the Macedonian vision. Wherein a man calls them to come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia would have been west from where Paul and Simon and Nat Simon, uh, Silas is from. They would have been west of where they were. They now have picked up this guy by the name of Timothy to come with them in this spreading of the gospel. They listen to this Macedonian vision to go out towards Macedonia. Macedonia is now made up of modern day Bulgaria, Greece and Albania. They head out eventually on this Macedonian call. They come to a city by the name of Philippi. And there they preach the gospel to the people there in Philippi. And a gal by the name of Lydia is converted. So is the rest of her house after hearing the gospel and believing. And then others are converted there. A church begins to be formed there in Philippi. The apostles then, uh, Paul and some of the team there, cast out a demon from a girl whose demonry was like a cash cow for these guys. And so these guys get ticked off because they lost their income. And so they begin to beat and drag Paul and Silas there into the city center in Philippi. Crowds begin to form and they start beating these guys, these missionary teams. Some of them, I'm sure, are wondering, are we sure we listen to that Macedonian vision right? Paul and Silas are rescued out of that beating. They're thrown into jail just to kind of rescue them and keep them alive. And as they're in the jail, there's an earthquake that happens. Pray for the people of Morocco, brothers and sisters. Earthquake happens. The stocks come off of Paul and Silas as they're singing praises to God. The jailer thinking he'd lost his job because he'd lost these people because the earthquake caused them to lose their stocks and run off. But instead they stay and he doesn't kill himself. Instead, Paul goes to him and preaches the gospel to him. And the jailer then takes them back home and Paul preaches the gospel to them. And then they get converted and they get wrapped up into the church in Philippi themselves. But nevertheless, things are going difficult there in Philippi. So they peace out. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, they peace out. They head down to this city by the name of Thessalonica. And they come into this city. Another major town named after Alexander the Great's sister. It was a major city back then. It is still a major city today. Paul 
as his practice is, goes to the Jewish synagogue and preaches for three consecutive weeks. Three synagogues, three synagogue gatherings. On that first Saturday, he told them that this Messiah, this promised one from God that's going to come, this promised one, he told them the first Sunday, this Messiah is going to suffer. The second Sunday, he comes back and he tells them that this Messiah is going to rise from the dead. And then the third week, he preaches is when he gets in a little bit of trouble and good all at the same time. He third week preaches that this Messiah of whom will suffer and die and rise from the dead is Jesus. Some are persuaded. Some believe. They give their life to Christ. Some Jews and Gentiles in that gathering, as well as some few, a few leading women there in Thessalonica. Church is beginning to form. But the Jews there in the city are beginning to get jealous. They're, they're losing members of their synagogue to what they think is this newfangled religion, when in fact it's actually a fulfillment of the old. So their Jews are persecuting these Christians in the same way, by the way, that we see Hindu nationalists persecuting Christians in India because they think they're losing their culture. But nevertheless, there in Thessalonica, there's this mob that gets formed and they go down to uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy's Airbnb. They run down to the house they've been staying at at this guy by the name of Jason's house. They go down there, they knock on the door, they open up. Paul and the boys are not there. So instead, they grab Jason and Jason's brothers in the house, bring him into city center, and they beat them for their trust in Christ. They say to the local authorities that they've now drugged Jason and his brothers too. They say, having not found Paul yet at this point, they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here to Thessalonica also. And Jason has received them and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king. Same thing, by the way, that was said of the Pharisees about Jesus. All Acts chapters, by the way, I'm just recounting Acts 16 and 17. All of Thessalonica, it says, is disturbed. Imagine in our city, Washington City, the whole city being upended by this gospel, by these people that are bringing this gospel. But nevertheless, there in Thessalonica, a church has been formed. But they only had a pastor slash planter for about a month. They're a young, fragile church without any pastors, newly understanding this gospel. Because Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy, they peace out, they go to the next town. They head down to Berea, and they're preaching the gospel there in Berea. And as they're in Berea, some of the Thessalonians, they find out they're down there. They head down to go on a road trip to Berea just to persecute Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy for this gospel. Well, as they're there, they cause all these problems. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and this kind of short-term mission team, they head out of Berea. And they then eventually go to Athens. And there, as we read in Acts chapter 17, Paul is reasoning in the Areopagus. Some here, some make fun of him. And they get out of Athens. Not a lot of work, not a lot of evident fruit is there in Athens. They then go on to this town by the name of Corinth. Preach the gospel in Corinth. People repent and believe. People respond. Another church is formed in Corinth. But again, Jews attack Paul and the boys. Again, wondering, was this Macedonian vision right? Yes, because as we'll see, affliction is part of the spread of the gospel. But regardless, Paul stays in Corinth to care for this newly formed church. And he stays there for about a year and a half to care for First Baptist Corinth. But as he's there, he begins to wonder what's going on at First Baptist Thessalonica. I mean, it's a fresh church. It's only been a few months. How's it going out there? And remember, he was readily aware of all the afflictions they were probably experiencing. 
So Paul is concerned about this baby church. And if you flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see he sends Timothy to go check on them. An amazing thing, Timothy goes there, he comes back, and as we read in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, when Timothy comes back, having hung out with First Baptist Thessalonica, he comes back with a good report. He says, they're doing great. They're loving Jesus amidst all of the affliction. They're trusting in Christ. They're giving themselves to the word. And so Paul writes this letter after having heard from Timothy about how well they're doing. That's the context. Paul writes this letter that we're studying as an authoritative message from an apostle which the Lord ordained would be inscribed as holy scripture, as authoritative for us. This letter is written consciously as God's word. You can see that by flipping to the end of 1 Thessalonians 5.27. You see there that Paul puts them under oath to read this letter, to instruct the church in it. You can also see that it's authoritative from God by looking in 1, Timothy, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where it says there that they received Paul's words, not as man's words, but as God's words. But this makes... This letter that we're studying, one of the oldest, if not the oldest letter in the New Testament, written around about 50 A.D. Remember, this church is a baby little church. Been in existence for a few months. Don't even know if it has any pastors. Sitting in a month of affliction. Jesus has only resurrected and ascended some 17 years prior to the writing of this letter, which would be sort of like a letter, which would be sort of like the distance between us today and 2009. It's not that long ago when Jesus... Had ascended. So the work of the gospel is fresh. We see that it's turning the world upside down amidst these afflictions as the gospel spreads and churches like the ones in Thessalonica are formed. And so the first point this morning, through affliction, gospel proclamation leads to gospel communities that are known as churches. That's what we see in that little study of just walking through Acts 16, really even before that, but All through the book of Acts, we see through affliction, gospel proclamation, they preach the gospel that leads to people responding and then forming gospel communities that are known as churches. Two brief observations and two applications about that. Christians born again by the Spirit working through afflictions. First, they share, we learn from this, they share their faith. That's what Christians do. They talk about Jesus. They talk about what he's done and what he can do for sinners. And then secondly, for those that respond, the second observation is, is those people that respond come inside of communities of light, those gospel communities of churches. Christians share their faith, and for those that respond, they then are formed into those gospel communities. Christians born again by the Spirit share the gospel that others might know the life of Christ and that Christ would be glorified. And for those that respond to that gospel, gospel communities or churches come together wherein by their life together they display the manifold wisdom of God to a watching world. That leads me to the tagline that we're going to be using throughout our study of this letter. It's this. Through affliction, titled the sermon series, Children of Light, taking that from 1 Thessalonians 5, Subtitle, Through Affliction, the Gospel Births Churches of Eternal Glory. 
God uses affliction in the advance of the gospel so that through those afflictions and the preaching of the gospel, not only God would realize those people that he chose before the foundation of the earth, but they would then be meaningfully formed together as a church, an assembly of Christians united in and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Those churches, they, they preach the gospel in their assemblies. They then spread out and preach the gospel. And those that respond, they gather together. And so, friends, if you are a Christian... You likewise, here's the application, you likewise must preach the gospel yourself, just as we see them doing. As Jesus said of those first ones, you are witnesses of who he is and what he's done. And secondly, second point of application, to claim to be a body, claim to be part of Christ, to be a member of Jesus and his body is to meaningfully form together in a church. If you're a Christian, you preach the gospel. And if you're a Christian, you gather with those that believe it. So as to celebrate the glory of Christ. And so to claim to be part of the body of Christ and not preach the gospel or not be meaningfully attached to the church is like being a severed finger in a jar of formaldehyde. It's unhealthy and unnatural. In fact, let's go ahead and look at the first lines. Take a look there. 1 Thessalonians 1.1. There's the missionary team we talked about. Paul, that's Silvanus is Silas, same guy. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. See, this letter, guys, is not merely written to individual Christians, whoever they are, who happen to be living in Thessalonica. That is not the context of this letter. It is written to a local church there in Thessalonica. The ones that have repented and believed upon Christ, those ones we learned about in Acts 17, that have gathered together. And so keep that in mind as we study this. All of the yous in this first Thessalonians, all of those yous are in the plural form. They're in the form of the you alls. We like to say down south, y'all. That's what's going on. What do you see the y'alls there, the yous? Through afflictions, Christians share the gospel. The gospel forms churches to continue to be formed in that gospel. And on and on it goes. As churches are planted all over the earth, gospel preached, people form, they come together for the glory of Christ, and they spread out, and more plant churches are planted all over the world until Jesus comes back. There's God's plan. God forms churches for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Sort of like that light in the Christmas Eve service, right? Where one person has the candle and lights another one and another one until the whole thing shines more light the more that it comes together in that light. So, friend, if you understand yourself to be a Christian... And secondly, you understand this to be your church home and you haven't joined through membership, we have a membership discussion class at 4 p.m. tonight. And if you show up tonight, you can say, why am I here? Well, I understand myself to be a Christian. And it seems like people that respond to the gospel form to churches and they meaningfully are known by those churches. And so I'm just trying to do what the Bible says. You can tell Joey that today at 4. So first point this morning we've seen is gospel proclamation leads to gospel communities known as churches. Second point we learned from this passage is that gospel-loving churches are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now my guess is you guys are probably a lot like me. You just sort of ran right past that sentence. 
Gospel-loving churches. He's written to the church in Thessalonica. Gospel-loving churches are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that in verse 1 again because it is packed, y'all, with meaning. This is not a throwaway line. It is steeped in theology. Paul is saying something to a community living in affliction for the gospel that defines them, that orients them, that strengthens them at the level of who they are. And I might add who we are as a church. Each of these words in that sentence are important to understanding who we are as a church of Christ. To the church, the word church means assembly. To the assembly, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Gospel formed and gospel preaching and loving churches are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's making a huge statement here. Paul is saying that the church, God's assembled people in, through, and by the gospel, they are plugged into the Trinity. That's what he's saying. They are rooted in, strengthened by the triune God. So just as my sons are in our family and strengthened by the life-giving love of my wife and I, so too are local churches that are rooted in the gospel. So too are they in the family of the Trinitarian God who has forever loved one another and strengthened one another in that love. This is, this is an absolutely massive truth that so many of us are either ignorant of or give, or give little thought or value to. I want you to notice that word in. You should circle that word in. It's such an important thing. Notice that word in is in front of only. It's only used one time. It's not, in other words, in front of Jesus' name. Although that's true that we are. But he's making a significant point. He's constructed this sentence for a reason. The church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ as though the Father and the Son were two separate gods. It's not what he's saying. That's why there's only one I in Referencing the two because those two are in. If you're in God the Father, you're in God the Son and God the Spirit. They are, they're in. That's why we Christians call it Trinity, Tri-Unity, Three-Unity. One God, three persons. They're in that. In John chapter 17, verse 24, we learn what was also happening before the foundation of the world. Not only had God, not only had the Lord chosen for himself a people, but also we learn that the Father was loving the Son. What was God doing before the foundation of the world? Loving the Son. Look, John 17, 24, Jesus prays for his people. He said that they, he wanted them to see my glory, he says, that you have given me because, here it is, you, referencing the Father, you have loved me, before the foundation of the world. So from eternity, what has God been doing? Loving one another. He has been loving, he has been exciting life in one another. Guys, the doctrine of the Trinity is crucial to experiencing the life and love of God. It's not some static, boring, old, crusty doctrine you set up on a shelf or only think about in systematic theology classrooms. No, no, it is crucial. See, unlike non-Trinitarian gods that are taught in so-called Christian churches like the Unitarians, Mormons, or Jehovah Witnesses, real Christianity understands that God is love because he has forever had someone of the same essence to set his love upon. 
He doesn't, in other words, need something else in order to be called love because he in and of himself can be love because he has one another to set his love upon. The Father has been setting his affection upon the Son and the Son has been reciprocating that love to the Father as it has been enlivened by the person of the Holy Spirit. Back and forth from before the foundation of the world. This is why God, in 1 John 4, can be said to be love. Because he is triune. Not three gods, one. Light from light, God from God. One essence, three persons, for eternity in one another, loving one another. Guys, this is why, this is so important. God doesn't just randomly refer to himself as father or son or spirit. Those words are very specific to reference who he is. Right? Because the eternal father in his role has eternally initiated love to the son, the eternal son has received that love and eternally returned that love to the father and they are both eternally enlivened in the anointing of the spirit. This is the heart of who God is. And so while God does create, he is a creator. While he does judge, he's a judge. And while he does rule, those words are not the primary words used to describe himself. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the words used for each person of the Trinity are given so as to describe the nature of the oneness and essence as they forever love one another, Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, it should be of no surprise to us that this God would have had a people from before the foundation of the world that he intends to love. Not because he needs them, not because he needs us, but because he so enjoys giving love to others. It's at the foundation of who he is. It was in God's overflowing joy for one another that he then said, let's create a world where we can love even more. Not that there was any deficiency in himself, nor is he setting his love upon humanity so as in the same way he's doing it as himself because we are not gods. He is. But he loves us as sons and daughters. They say, let's create a world of people made in our image that will do as we do and be in us and in one another for the purposes of exciting life, giving love to one another. So as to display our glory and be good to them and spread out over the world, that will hold people that is loving me and loving them, neighbor as self, all over the world. in these little communities everywhere. That was God's plan. And they knew from, as we learn from Ephesians 1, from before the foundation of the world, there would be rebellion, there would be dissolution from himself. And so therefore God would then show his love by the father giving his son to sinners. And that son going in love to rescue those people that he set his affection upon before the foundation of the world. The son willingly going from the father's love in love to go rescue his wife, the church, laying his life down for her. Not because she was lovely, but because he was, and he could make her lovely. The Spirit then, because of the sufficient work of Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, therefore can then take up residence inside of us, therefore enlivening us just like it was in creation when the Spirit was hovering over the waters. So the Spirit enlivens his people in his love. And we come together in that love to picture it and enjoy it and give praise to him for it. So bringing it back to 1 Thessalonians, when God says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying in our sin, we were estranged, we were cut off, we were left alone under his judgment. 
But now, because of the gospel, because of the sufficient work of the Son, they, we, that are in Christ, are now reconciled back into the life-giving, love-inducing triune God. Most fundamentally, Paul is saying to them and even to us this morning, that's who the church is. And that's where you get its life. That's who we are as a church. We could say like this. We could say, to the church of the Washingtonians, Restoration Church, inside God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. This grace of being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this grace has come to us through Christ so that now we might have what? Peace. This is why Paul begins his letters as he does. The grace of the gospel and the resulting peace we have with God and one another in the church. That's why Paul starts his letters the way that he does, to remind us of who we are and how we have our life together. And so Restoration Church, be reminded this morning, it was by the gospel that we came to be a church. It was through those afflictions, through gospel proclamation, that through gospel application of repenting and believing, gathering together in that gospel. And all of this we have is because we are actively in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course the Spirit as well. Our life together, and all of that word life means, is inextricably bound up in the uniting to, in being united to, being dancing, dancing with that dance that has been going on from eternity. We are in the triune God of love. As, and he, by the way, is glad to have us, warts and pitiful pastors and all. Restoration Church, we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is where our life comes from. And that then leads us to what Paul says next. Take a look. One, gospel proclamation leads to the planting of churches. Two, churches are in the eternally triune God. Thirdly, we have evidence of our being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to thanksgiving. So it's not just that we have it. There should be evidence, right? As Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with the pity. You'll know them by their fruits. We have evidence of it. Look at the next two verses. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, did you notice the pairing of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ closely connected together? You see it there again? You're going to see it more times in First Thessalonians. And by the way, if you think the Holy Spirit is getting the shaft, just slide down to verses 5 and 6. Right? There he is. It is only by the power of the Spirit that they have come to believe the gospel. But we see the little short-term missionary team's response to the Thessalonian church's evidence of being in the triune God. We see that by their constantly giving thanks to God in prayer. Paul and Silas and Timothy, guys, model something that I think that we can forget. Two things. One, they show us what to look for. And secondly, where to go when we see it. Paul and Silas, right here in these two verses, they show us what to look for in the church. And where to go when we see it. And we'll think more about that, what to look for in a second. But for now, we know the church, the church in Thessalonica, we know that it is in the Trinity because that church has faith, hope, and love. That's 
what he's saying. And, so, and he gives thanks to God for that. So too often, guys, we are prone to giving God thanks for cars and jobs and raises and homes. Yes and amen. We should. But those things are so pale in comparison to the spiritual benefits of walking with God and Christ together. If someone offered you a million dollars or one million degrees of sanctification, which would you choose? Your answer will reveal where you think your joy is found. And let me tell you, there's one testimony of having achieved the American dream and walked away from most of it, not all of it. I can tell you there's far more wealth in seeing and enjoying the spiritual benefits of Christ in the church than there is in more square footage and more traveling. More of Christ with Christ's people. And the comparison, by the way, it's not even really close. Right? We, we think about that story of Lou Gehrig that famously said on the day that he retired from baseball in the prime of his life because of the illness that now bears his name, that thing that he said that day, it's so, it resonated inside of American history because it was so countercultural, so counterintuitive, such an unexpected thing. Lou Gehrig said on the day that he was retiring from the Yankees in the prime of his life because his body is literally withering away, he says, I consider myself the luckiest man in all the world. Friends, the only reason he was able to say that is because he knew where to look for to find wealth amidst his affliction. He knew what was truly valuable. The question is, do we? Do we look for the blessings of God primarily in the personal and material that are kind of more worldly kind of things? Or do we labor each day to look inside of the life of this church and see the spiritual blessings that are so abundant do we do as Paul does and begin to identify works of faith and labors of love and steadfastness of hope and say that's what's truly valuable and thanking God for it? Is that what we do? Do you, Christian, know what to primarily look for and be thankful to God for? Well, Paul and the boys did. They knew that true wealth, true joy, true life, and true peace was not in more square footage and more traveling. It was in more of God in the life of the church. Do you know that? Do you know primarily what to look for? And then secondly, the missionary team shows us not only what to look for, but he gives us what to be thankful for because of the life in the Trinity. They show us where to go once you see it. Namely, we go back to God in constant prayers of thanksgiving. Remembering. All of those good things we've seen in others in our life together. Thanking God for how he is moving in the congregation. Thankful prayer to God is the recognition of where every good and perfect gift comes from. Good gifts come not from us, but from God who raises the dead, the father of lights. Any absence of regular prayers of thanksgiving for the wealth of spiritual and material lessons, uh, material blessings in the church, any absence of those things, not only shows a disinterest in God, and it not only shows a desire to be self-propelled, not God-propelled, 
But it also shows that either you don't know, don't understand, or don't care to acknowledge that God is the author of every spiritual blessing. The absence of regular prayers of thanksgiving to God for the evidence of spiritual blessings in the life of the church is functional atheism or functional selfishness. It's not abiding in Christ. Some of you have experienced this. You ever given a gift to somebody and it cost you a lot to give that gift? And after they took it, they, the, the person loved the gift. They were thankful for the gift. And they loved the gift so much, they barely even acknowledged you. How'd that make you feel? Right? There's something about right the good gift that we should enjoy that should redound back and be more mindful of the God that gave it. And that's how we evidence life in the Trinity. Paul tells the church that he's thankful for the spiritual blessings of their faith and love and hope because he knows they started with God. He knows what to look for and he knows where to go afterwards. But there's a third thing here, guys. One more thing before we close. There's a third thing that we learn here. And quite frankly, I think this thing is the thing that he wrote for. This, what I'm about to tell you, is the primary purpose of why he wrote verses 1, 2, and 3. He's telling the church this because he wants them to have the assurance that amidst the affliction that they are experiencing, he wants them to be assured that they are also experiencing the regenerating power of the triune God. He wants to give them assurance. He wants to give them peace. Slide down. Look at verse 4. We'll consider this more next week. But he says there, For we know, brothers, we know, we know this. Can we really know God? Yes. We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. We always give thanks to God for you, remembering you in our prayers for the ways God is evidently, He's so evidently at work in you. Imagine, guys, what this would do for a baby and beleaguered church that is being beat down by constant afflictions. Right? You're being beat down. You're being set apart. Right? And there you are trying to follow Jesus and you're trying to do this inside the life of the church together. You're kind of new at this following Jesus thing and you're wondering what's going on. And you get a word from an apostle who says, I see it. It's at work. It's happening. What would that do for you? It would give you assurance. Like, okay, okay. We're not fake, man. We're real. As an analogy to this, think about someone you really look, look up to. Someone you really admire. Someone really invested in you. Think about that person. You got them in your mind? Now think about one of your friends going to that person and saying to them, hey, insert name, all that stuff that you taught them, they're doing great. They're walking it out. They're living it out. They're doing well. Now what would you do if you found out that your friend told that mentor of yours that you were doing well? What would it do for you? It would give you confidence. It would give you assurance. Okay. I think about this, uh, oftentimes this, this, this thought comes to my mind. I was 22 years old when I lost my dad. And I think like this metaphorical you know, conversation between my mom and my dad. What if my mom could say to my dad, Artie, Nathan's doing it. He, he's, he's a good man. He's loving his wife, loving his kids. I mean, he's a piece of work, but like he's a good kid, right? To know that my mom said that to my dad, just the knowledge of that gives me peace. And that's what Paul's doing to this church. Quieting their souls that they would then be quickened to stay on track. 
That's what Paul is doing to this fresh new baby church. By telling them how he's thankful to God for them. And telling, telling them what he's been praying to God about them. So that by hearing what he's praying for them, seeing their evidence, they would be strengthened to stay the course. And so members of Restoration Church, let me do the same for you. As a pastor, one of your pastors, let me do that now. Let me share with you how I regularly give thanks to God for your work of faith, for your labors of love, for your steadfastness of hope, for the ways that you work out your faith in Christ, that is, for the ways that you labor in love for Christ, for the ways that you uh, are hoping in Christ. It is not lost on your pastors. And most importantly, it's not lost on your God. We as elders, we got our elders retreat this weekend, and what we'll do is just talk regularly. We'll talk about ways that we need to grow, but we will talk about the many ways in which we're thankful to God for you. You are a joy to pastor. Be assured, Restoration Church, that our good gifts that we see happening in here are evidences of the fact that this little church is in the Trinity. I regularly give thanks to God for the ways in which you give rides to those that need them. For the ways that you feed and clothe the poor. For the way that you watch children and discipline them in the gospel. For the ways that you give of your money for the advance of the gospel and church planting. For the ways that you wake up on Sunday mornings and you come here ready to hear me ramble on and on for an hour. For the ways that you prioritize the prayer gathering the first Sunday night of the month. For the ways that you share the gospel, not only when it's easy, but when it's hard. For the ways that you forgive one another, the ways you bear with one another and encourage one another. For the ways that you rebuke and admonish one another in the spirit of Christ. For the ways that you check in with one another via text message or phone calls or FaceTime calls or sacrificing to get time together, to take walks together, to have coffee together, so as to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. This work is evidence, this work of faith, this labor of love, your hope when you've had miscarriages and you've lost people that you love, you keep hoping in Jesus. Evidence that you, that we are in the triune God. I could go on and on. The Restoration Church, what we read, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy commending the church in Thessalonica 2,000 years for, I could do the exact same. I am not an apostle, to be sure. But nevertheless, I could do the same for you. God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are deeply flawed. we got ways we need to grow, but it's here. Just as it was with Thessalonica. You're gonna read, we're going to see they were, they were jacked up too in some ways. But, God, but Paul saw it. He saw that work. I see it in you. These are evidences of God's work in our midst. And so, guys, let me, that's the call for us. You guys got to do the same thing. You got to keep looking for those evidences that we are in the triune God. In order that we might remain steadfast in our hope of the Lord Jesus. And that hope, by the way, is not kind of a hope it doesn't rain kind of hope. It's a confident hope. He's coming back. We have a kind of hope that is so rooted and so confident in the return of Christ that we say, I know things are hard. I know life is difficult. I know things are hard. I I, I know all of these things are not the way I want it to be. I'd like to change this or that, but I will not neglect Christ. I will not neglect his people. We're going to do this and follow follow Jesus together as best we can. We're going to stay this course. We say that as a church. Steadfast hope. I'm thankful to God for you. 
Well, as I conclude, we began this morning by recounting what God had been doing since the foundation of the world. That's how we started. Eternally loving one another, Father, Son, and Spirit. We also considered how before the foundation of the world, He had chosen a people for Himself to be made holy and blameless. And we recounted how Christ came to ransom those people by His work on the cross. And we thought about how after the resurrection and ascension, He then sent His people, His Spirit, to spread, to enliven their love for Him and embolden these gospel communities, to create and embolden them. Planting churches there in Jerusalem. We thought about how it went to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica. Guys, Restoration Church is in the same genealogy as those churches. Churches that are in the triune God of love. We thought about that. We, we manifestly displaying that we are in Him by our work of faith, by our labors of love, by our steadfast hope, and our needing to continue that work in and of ourselves, to see it, to thank God for it, and let other people know that we're thanking God for it. We apply these things, again, to ourselves. And so, beloved, as our sort of life gets back to more regular rhythms, as community groups start back this week, as new friends come and visit us, as we travel less, maybe, and maybe work more, do not neglect the church, and the ways that God is working in her. Don't neglect to see it, participate in it, thank God for it, and then tell them that you thank God for when you saw it. He's given us a precious gift in this collection of deeply flawed people. He's given us a precious gift. In the eyes of the world, it's tame and sort of unspectacular, but in the eyes of God and his people, it is amazing. Peter says the angels long to look into the gospel and that work of the gospel. He's given us a precious gift, so don't take it for granted. Be strengthened by it. Be instructed by it. Be encouraged by it. Right? Prioritize our meetings together. See the faith. See the love. See the hope of God's people as we gather and then as we go the rest of our weeks. Prioritize all of those meetings and regularly give thanks to God for the fruit therein. And tell others that they might be assured of the work of God and the gospel in the church. And then be thankful to God for the throngs of other churches doing this all around the world. And pray for them too. Longing to see more churches, more gospel communities planted. Right? This is one of the reasons we're part of the Treasuring Christ Together network. To see more churches planted that are like this deeply flawed yet gloriously saved one. That all over the world there would be a people that love God that love neighbor and the light of the glow of the gospel wherein we will finally all come together as one church when Jesus returns and we will sing his praises together recounting all of the worth of faith, all of the labors of love and the hope that we had that now lands in the moment when we're together inside of the sight of Christ. That's the day we're looking for. Stay at the work and soon enough, beloved, We'll be home. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gospel. That in you, the triune God of love, you have chosen a people in love to be holy and blameless through the affliction of your son. And it is by that gospel you have so empowered your people to spread that gospel and form communities of light that would testify to that work. 
till eventually you would have all of the people that you've already paid for in churches all over the world. And we pray, God, that as we go through our own series of afflictions, as maybe, maybe a little bit different than the Thessalonians did, but still our own afflictions, we pray that we would be like Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, that we would readily acknowledge who we are, where it comes from, and how we have evidence of it all so that we would be encouraged, that we would be assured to stay at the work till you return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me invite you to stand as we sing in response.